Welcome to Cheek by Jowl's podcast, not true, but useful. This is episode six, why we do what we do. Hi, I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and in this podcast, I'm going to take you behind the scenes with a series of interviews with the artistic directors of Cheek by Jowl, as they share their philosophy on life and the theatre in a series of ideas that they find not true, but useful. And today, I'm talking to Declan Donnellan about what makes us do what we do. And it's great to have you on the line, Declan. Hello, Lucy. (laughs) So we've now been out of rehearsal rooms for over two months. What are you really missing about rehearsals? Oh, I just miss the sort of contact with people. I miss the jokes. I miss the coffee breaks. I miss the, you know, moments when you discover things with people. I mean, I, I miss the whole collaborative nature of it. So has lockdown changed the way that you think about theatre at all? Yes, I think it's rather good, particularly in Britain, as a sort of as a useful, but sometimes overpowering, need to be practical. And sometimes it's quite good that we can't do anything. So it's actually quite good to take time out and just have a, something of, a, of an overview, which is just to think about the position from which we view the work that we do. And just to see the, the still earth that I'm on. And I think that's a very important thing for us always to think about, to know that we're all on still earths. And particularly the still earth from which I view the job that I do or how it fits into the world. That's been one advantage for me in, in the lockdown, that I can think in this way that's less immediately practical, but I hope more useful. So when you say what still earth we are on, do you mean that it's a good time to question our assumptions? Uh, yes, funny enough, it's not so much the, your assumptions, it's the position from which you see the world. You occasionally hear things and realise that the other person is viewing the situation from a completely different place. And we say oh, yes, well, they have a different point of view. I think a more useful way of putting that is the position from which they see the world. So when the Pope thought the Earth was still, and scientists at the time sort of made it clear that, in fact, the Earth was moving, and the big row between Galileo and the Pope started, um, and we don't understand that story very well because we moralise it and we say a bad Pope and good bad Galileo. Uh, but really, you know, we should try and try and keep an open mind and try not to make judgments too soon. And it's quite good to have some compassion for the Pope and think it's actually very difficult to understand that the earth is moving. And then to take a little dose of humility and think, and what still earth am I on? Um, am I really so superior to the Pope that I know that the earth is moving? Am I so superior to other people that the position that from which I view the world is the best one that I could have? Or, or just simply are there other positions from which I can see the world? In today's episode, we're going to be talking about motivation, or why we do what we do. This is a big question in different theatre methodologies over the decades, starting with Stanislavski's idea about identifying what a character wants at any given moment in a scene. It's a way of making theatre which is inspired by research on human psychology and applies it to the creative process. Now, Declan, I know that you have a particular approach to this question of why we do what we do, which, as ever, focuses on what is not necessarily true, but definitely useful. Why do we start with one of your haunting stories, which we often use to help us get to grips with the day's topic? So, what is today's haunting story about motivation? 
This isn't a myth, a sort of haunting myth so much. It's just an image. Look, it might be useful to think about a dad who is going to take his small son fishing, and the son's been dying to go fishing, uh, but it's starting to rain. And the dad says, well, the skies are very grey, and there'll be no one there, and I don't think we should go. And the son insists he's absolutely crazy to go fishing. And as they part the car, they get out, and the father realises that river's totally overflowed its banks, and that it's racing, crashing past the bridge. And um, he tries to stop his son, but the son runs ahead and at the last minute trips and falls headlong into the river where the father, quick as a flash, grabs the son's heel. So there's the dad holding the son's heel. The son's in the river being dragged forwards by this incredibly powerful current. His other hand is reaching and first of all, it gets a tuft of grass and then the grass gives way and he manages in time to grasp a piece of thorny gorse and his feet are also slipping in the mud. So that's the situation. The better word might be predicament. So if we say, you know, why do you think the father's doing that? What's his motivation? What's his action? What's his desire? It's to save his son's life. Why? Because he loves his son. He's saving his son's life because he loves his son. But I don't think that's the father's experience at all on the bank. I think if we actually see the world through his eyes, the father has no reason to hang on to his little son's ankle. He's watching the socks slide off in the wet. He's watching the little ankle turn blue. He's hanging on for dear life. But he's not doing it because he loves his son. He's doing it simply because there's nothing else that he can do. He has no choice. It's all that he can do. He's in a world beyond motive, beyond character, beyond anything like that. Everything, time and space, all suddenly focus on this one point for him and he will never ever forget that moment for the rest of his life he'll never forget the space he'll never forgive the river he'll never forget the mud he'll never forget the little ankle every single atom of him is focused on that and at that moment we can't really say he has a motive afterwards we can if he's interviewed by the newspapers people say you were very brave you're very strong you've got extraordinary endurance to hang on for so long you must really love your son. He'll say, yes, yes, I love my son. He'll agree that he loves his son, but that isn't his motive. It's not his experience at the time. And I, I just think it's a useful moment to think about because, first of all, it makes clear that a motive is our way of explaining something. It's not necessarily the cause. It's just a way of explaining something. In a way, it's something that makes us feel more comfortable. It's important because I think that that moment, that extreme moment when everything is stripped away and you're there, I would say, in, in a naked encounter with the predicament, that's so much closer to us than we dare think. And that it wouldn't take too many taps of the computer in our imaginations to get us there. And we console ourselves with reassurances that we're a long way away from there. And we will do anything to give ourselves the delusion that we're in control. So... Like this man with his son, do you think that our actions are driven more by dread than by what we want? I think so. I think what's not true but useful is that there were some apes who saw a saber-toothed tiger and ran, but we're not descended from those apes. Uh, there were other apes who, who started running, and one ape said to another, why are we running? And the other ape said, oh, it's because we've just seen a saber-toothed tiger. Those are the ones we're descended from. In other words... We're descended, I think, from the ones who have the, the dread, good to go, as the Americans say. You're good to go. It's there. It's just two or three taps away, and you're good to go. In fact, you can, your body can start reacting before your brain has had time to assimilate it. Let's come back to the origin of any action. Why do we do anything? Why do we get out of bed in the morning? Well, we get out of bed in the morning because maybe we want to pee, or we get hungry, 
or you know we feel slovenly in bed but on the whole we'll get up because we'd feel worse if we stayed in bed or we don't go to work and we'll get sacked we'd, we'd feel what we'd feel worse so the safest way for the actor to look at it is you get up to you get up you wake up you get out of bed you do things to make better the bad feeling to somehow ameliorate somehow mitigate to somehow soothe the bad feeling which is already there i was very impressed last year reading sally rooney's normal people which i understand now is a very successful tv series I, i'm just basing this on on the novel but what appears to be a story of just kids, a sort of complex teen romance story, is in fact much more deep than that, it struck me. But largely because of the enormous amount of dread that Marianne and, and her boyfriend have to deal with, his dread of breaking his social norms, and all the different dreads that kind of attack them. Once we start to become present with the extraordinary power of dread in our lives and how much energy and how we can destroy our lives trying to avoid things that we feel make us feel dread. And how do you use this idea to help actors out in your rehearsal room? It almost sounds like the flip side of Stanislavski's coin, that the useful question might not be what we want, but instead the opposite. The question is, where is the dread? In other words, the actor shouldn't be thinking about desire at all. What do you want? It's what do you want to avoid? So to actually think more in terms of defence rather than in terms of desire is... Um, very useful for the actor because it means you go into the scene with a huge power pack already so that Romeo doesn't have to think you know I must love Juliet I must love Juliet I must love Juliet the actor instead thinks you know I'm terrified I'm going to lose her and if you do that if you react against the negative you get much much more energy for free than if you go and try and make yourself a little factory of positive volition it seems like such a good approach because answering the question of what we want can sometimes be very anxiety-inducing. I think I rarely know what I want. Yes, from my personal experience, you know, if a friend says to me, you know, Declan, now what do you want in your life? What do you really want now? Now getting older, what do you want? I can get very frightened because I, I kind of don't know what I want. But if they were to say, you know, what do you dread most? <laughs> I can hold forth <laughs> for hours. I don't want to get cancer. I don't want to die. I want to be able to go on working. I want to go on being needed. I, you know, can give a lot of away about myself structuring what I don't want. The other thing that I find particularly useful about this idea is that the question of what you want is always about something that's in the future, something that doesn't yet exist. Whereas what you dread is already with you right now. So it forces us to engage with the present moment in rehearsal, which is often what we're trying to do. Yes. All I, all I can tell is that great relief tends to pass over the actors when they realise that they can find out what it is that they dread, that they're trying to avert. And then it's like there's, there is an originating energy which comes from somewhere else. So that real nightmares when the actor feels it's down to them to energise the scene. And very unhelpful criticisms of acting are, oh, she didn't drive the play. Well, nobody should be bloody driving the play. The predicament drives the play. Actually, the actors are always acting against the predicament. They're trying to slow down the play. The energy is already supplied at the beginning. So the actor should never have to fabricate that energy. The actor has to see that energy outside and then try somehow to steer it, divert it, convert it, to be under some form of control. But the imagination always has to be that the problem's already there. And as soon as actors realise that, they tend to become slightly more relieved. 
So the one thing I'm intrigued about is that we're not always in dire circumstances, like this man trying to save his child at the river. Sometimes we have to think about how to create life on stage with lower stakes. So how does your idea apply to life and to scenes, which are not such extreme naked encounters with the predicament, as you put it? I think there's two ways of looking at it. That The bad feeling is something that's mildly, it's like you're feeling hungry in the morning, you need to get out of bed to fry yourself an egg, you're feeling kind of a bit depressed at home, you want to go and you phone up a friend for a bit of a chat, you go for a walk because you're slightly, feeling slightly stuffy at home. There's that actually that the wanting is much better to trace back to a bad feeling we are trying to overcome. The difference between the bad feeling and dread is that you have some measure of control over the bad feeling. You can, If you don't want to stay in bed, you can get out of bed. Dread is something different. Dread is something that controls you. It's what um, is described in that speech of Macbeth's. Macbeth is a great play to look at if you want to consider the operation of dread because it's like out there in your face. And in one speech, well, at least one, but many speeches actually, the characters actually start to talk about dread like as if they know what they're talking about. Macbeth's first soliloquy talks to the audience um, after the prophecies come true and he's been made plain of Corder. And it's um, quite creepy because it means maybe the predictions of the witches are true. He says, uh, this supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, cannot be good. If ill, why hath it given me earnest of success commencing in a truth? I am Thane of Cordor. If good, why do I yield to that suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. And it's interesting because he says, well, well, it's just amazing. It's an extraordinary description of a body in, in the grip of dread. He grabs the essential characteristics of dread, which is that it's unseen. Boundaries are blurred. It's bigger and darker than he is, and it's more powerful. He says present fears are less than horrible imaginings, that something I might be afraid of now is not nearly as bad as the horrible imagining and the horrible imagining is actually the dread that we all know. We don't, you know, I think we, we, we all know what dread is. It's something that's bigger than us that can grab us. And I, as I said before, you know, what happens in Macbeth, there are two kids, they walk into the wood, the trees get bigger, darker, and lose their shape. And they get bigger and bigger. And as they get bigger and bigger, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. That's the important thing. The actors have to have the generosity to let their characters shrink in the face of the dread that's in the predicament. And I think what I love about that line as well is, as you were saying about the fisherman and his son, that moment seems to make time collapse into just the present second. And that thing he says about present fears are less than horrible imaginings. It's like past and future are all just collapsing into this horrible moment that's in front of him but instead but it's interesting because she picks up that theme and she says um and i feel now the future in the instant and then we might say could you stop there please because that's exactly what you're not doing you're exactly what you're not doing with is you're not in any way imagining how this is going to sort of play out down the line you're only thinking about now so sometimes we feel we can judge and explain a character's behaviour as we observe it from the outside, but in fact, the internal experience of that character in that moment is often radically different. Yes, I think so. I remember once I had a sort of 
a couple of years in which I found it, I, I, I became increasingly terrified of flying. It was in the 1980s. But very connected with this, there's a very simple principle. So, for example, if you are in the throes of a paranoid attack, there's two positions, there are two still earths you can see it from. One is the point of view of the person who believes that the flight might crash, and the other person is the friend who sees that it's irrational. But the thing is that... When you're in the grip of a paranoid attack, it doesn't seem irrational. It seems absolutely logical that it could crash. And inside inside um, the delusion, inside the irrational moment, always inside what appears to be irrational, you'll find the most appalling cathedral of logic. And so how does suspending your judgment and thinking about this undercurrent of dread help you to think about plays as a director? I think, first of all, in these great plays, particularly if they're comedies as well, we'll see that the only motor for the plot is the avoidance of dread. And I think that when you look at a play, particularly a great play, it's a very good discipline, I have found, to find the dread. Oscar Wilde, for example, in, in something like The Importance of Being Earnest. Um, the, the, the one way of looking at the characters in the play is they're all absolutely terrified, like the Macbeths, that they're ordinary. And they speak in this self-regarding way. You know, um, Gwendolyn, uh, impressing Sicily, says um, I, about her diary, she said, oh, I, I always bring something sensational to read on the train. And they have this sort of grand way of, of speaking. You, Miss Prisms, you may omit the passage on the fall of the rupee. It is somewhat too sensational. But one of the things that unites these characters, I think, is their absolute dread of um, seeing how ordinary they are. And they're absolutely terrified to discover that their shit smells the same as anybody else's, which is a pretty universal human uh, problem. It's, it's a crazy problem that we give ourselves. We, it's so difficult to grasp our own ordinariness and they will speak very cleverly they'll speak very archly and they'll dress it up in sort of a lot of kind of camp hokum but it's to do with their dread of being ordinary and of course all of those romantic comedies are always predicated on the existence of dread i must not fall in love and if it's just that the character doesn't want to fall in love then they're not very funny they get funny only if the character dreads falling in love. Something like Beatrice in um, Much Ado dreads falling in love with Benedict, dreads that whole awakening in her. She doesn't just dislike it. So is motive then one more of those words that we should view as a little treacherous when rehearsing a play because it can distract us from this vital engine of dread? Yes. I'm quite addicted to television. I watch a lot of cop series. But one of the things that the detectives do on TV is that they establish motives. They try to find the motive for the person who did this appalling crime. The problem is, is that that is a fairy story. It's an incredibly, however gritty and how much the streets of Stockholm and Copenhagen look scary at night and sophisticated and adult. It's actually a fairy story because um, motive isn't that interesting to the police. It's very uninteresting to the judges. Um, English law, I believe, makes no mention of motive whatsoever in, in the criminal law, or very, very little. Lawyers aren't particularly interested in motives apart from when it comes to court. And people suddenly become interested in motives because juries like motives. And juries are people like me who watch TV and they like a story to the beginning, middle and end, and they like the mystery to be explained away. So one of the things that's deeply reassuring about some of um, TV series about a serial killer, I've seen lots, 
is that they do reassure us, really, that there's an explanation for suffering, that there's an explanation for horror and monstrosity. The really great detective stories, of course, don't they leave you with more mystery than before. Like, like a great scientist who will expose a theory to you and make you understand that the more we understand, the less we understand. And understanding how little we understand is a sign that our understanding's got greater. Understanding everything is a sign that our understanding is really quite banal. I just want to say that about motive, that we get bombarded with it on TV. We're actually watching something, however scary it looks, we're actually watching something really reassuring. And we have understanding and we have explained away the mystery. So is it perhaps an uncomfortable truth that overwhelming dread is just part of the blueprint of our lives, but we love to reassure ourselves that we're in control of it? Yes. Let's think of a little girl pretending to be a ghost. What she'll do is she'll put a sheet over herself and run around the house going woo-woo. You might think, how come the sheet becomes the cliché notation for ghost? And it's because we understand that ghosts are invisible, and in order to make them visible, they need to vest, they need to put clothes on, and that's the white sheet. I was fascinated as a child by the Invisible Man TV series. But that's that's what dread wants to do. Dread wants to dress itself in things, to explain itself. And we tend to help it do that. And of course, politicians can say, um, the, re- the thing that you dread is over there, it's this or that. And when you see somebody who's very neurotic, you can sometimes see their, the thing that they dread changes from one thing to another. Or traditionally, the hypochondriac will find a lump on one foot one day and a lump on another foot next week. Because it isn't the thing it says it is. It's the dread seeking to vest. The dread seeks to vest. And until we understand that the dread is a kind of invisible force that sometimes gets out of control in us for mysterious reasons, which we can keep under control, uh, it can engulf us and we fall ill, I suspect we're never going to get rid of it. I suspect it's a part of us and that we need to uh, make friends with it. But I think also we hear because of it, um, it occasionally still helps us in dangerous situations. um, And it certainly helped our ancestors, I believe, from those saber-toothed tigers. So before we move on to take a deep dive into a scene from Three Sisters, have you got any final advice for actors in tackling the question of why characters do what they do? I think the big thing that I'd like to say loud and clear is that it's a really good idea to let the actor off the hook of feeling that they have to originate desire from nil, that they have to start the car on a cold day on a horizontal surface. And if they have to start the car on a cold day, it's much better if it's at the top of a hill pointing downwards so that there's already a potential energy. But I think when when we have forced time off, it's good to think of what we're doing. And those shapes, um, I think, are useful. In this part of the episode, we take our topic for the week and use it to unpack a scene from a play. And this week, it's the turn of Act One of Anton Chekhov's Three Sisters. And if our chat today interests you, you can find the text of this scene and links to photos and archive materials of Declan's production of this play in the podcast notes. So Three Sisters follows the lives of the Prozorov siblings, Olga, Masha, Irina and Andre who get relocated from a metropolitan existence in Moscow to a rural town with their father's army regiment. A year to the day before the play starts, their father died, leaving them stranded in a crumbling house. The play opens then on the anniversary of their father's death as they throw a tea party for the local soldiers. At first glance, this scene appears to be quite low stakes. It's a tea party. So Declan, 
How does finding the dread help fire up the action? I think a very good way to begin the scene is to think, you know, what are the circumstances of the sisters, the three sisters and the brother in this house? Um, Chepachikin is a lodger in it and they're celebrating Irina's name day um, with a party and having the officers round. And by coincidence, it's the uh, first anniversary of their father's death. Anyway, so that's if we think of it in terms of circumstances, given or changing circumstances, that's what it appears to be. But I don't particularly like the word circumstances because it removes danger from the equation. And to me, it sounds like I'm talking about a car starting on a cold morning on a horizontal road. I don't think circumstances is adequate. I think it's a predicament. And the way you find the predicament is you find the dread and it's completely hidden there, and they're probably unconscious of it. But, well, the first thing is, I always used to think it was nothing particularly unusual about it until my father died, until my parents died. And one thing I do know is that on the first year's anniversary, you, you see the calendar coming around, and on that day you see the clock coming around, and it's a very strange time. You know, it's, it's, you, you can't explain what it is, but it's a big old time. And chattering about it and also throwing this party on the first anniversary of the father's death, which, of course, is coincidentally Irina's name day. After all, you think, that's odd. Then more, there are more and more clues in the scene that they're in a kind of dangerous situation. It's not, there's nothing comfortable about this. There's something very peculiar. And you notice after a while that Olga says some pretty cruel things to Irina and fairly cruel to Masha. And then she's quite cruel to herself as well. And then the soldiers come in and they chatter and you realise something unsettling is happening. They have this fantasy of going to Moscow. But for me, there's a huge menace in the play, in the in the situation. The, the word I prefer to use is predicament because it implies more that they're on the Titanic because that's where they are. They're not in a house, they're on the Titanic and they're going down and they could mitigate that. And like I always say, you know, there's two ways that helped you on the Titanic survive. One was having a first-class ticket and the other was knowing that the boat was going down. We can't always have a first-class ticket, but we can know the boat's going down. They don't really want to see that the boat's going down. They know everything. There's no information they need to have. Like Macbeth's, they kind of know it. Like Oedipus, they know it. But they don't really do anything about it. And I think one of the huge energies for the actors is that the real dread really isn't anything to do with Moscow, I don't think. That's partial. But the real dread is the town, that they are going to be subsumed by ordinariness, this thing that I think is very important in, in many, many characters, that they're just going to be three weird sisters living in another sort of funny house at the edge of town with their funny fat brother, and that they'll be kind of ordinary. And they want to keep themselves feeling superior and special. And Irina says, you know, her great trauma is that she forgot what the Italian for window was. And I just dread to think what the people in the town think about three brother of sisters and their brother living in that house. They're very, very snooty. And you realise that slowly they are going to be taken over by the town. The thing they most dread is, is going to happen. And they're going to become ordinary. And they're going to become like human beings. And they get stripped of pretensions. And that's a kind of disaster for them. Through these self-deceptions, Tuzenbach dies and um, gets killed. And nobody does anything to stop it. And... It's, it's very sad. It's about inaction, but it's about this... I think it's quite an energetic denial. The situation is one of extreme danger. I'm saying that to rehearse it, it's a very good idea to say, where is the dread? I think it's very good not to say, do you know, I go in with an open mind, maybe there'll be dread here or not. First of all, I think we have to be real. No one's ever had an open mind. 
what we can do is try to have an open mind, but we shouldn't park our common sense outside. And if there's no dread, it's not particularly interesting. The predicament, we'll come on to talk about the predicament another time, the predicament is the thing that makes the story worth telling. A story's no use unless it has a predicament. If you're watching a series on TV and you get through the first 25 minutes and there's no predicament, you switch off. People sometimes think it's sympathy for the leading characters, interesting plot. It's actually the predicament that hooks you. It's the predicament that helps us to empathize with other people and it hooks us in. So I think slowly we understand that they're in a terrible position and they're in an extraordinary state of denial. I love what you say about Three Sisters being about energetic inaction, because otherwise it's really easy to misread this play as being about people being bored in a country house. But if we look at it your way, it's actually a totally frantic, dread fueled limbo that they're in. Exactly. There's a quite a scary line in, in Lampedusa's novel, in Principe, when he says, you know, everything must change so that everything may stay the same. So that actually keeping things the same is very, very energetic. You know, somebody preserving their beauty or their youth or their looks in old age. My God, there's a lot of work often thrown into that. There's a lot of existence maintaining going on, and it's frenzied in The Three Sisters. We have reached the last part of the podcast in which we answer questions which listeners have put to us. So Declan, today's question is, do you find that you direct differently when working with actors in different languages and cultures? Does working with a French or Russian cast change your creative process? No, not self-consciously. I don't think I'm now in Russia, I'm now in France, I'm now in England. I mean, it's, it's more specific than that. It's like this particular group of actors who, who are in the room with me. Um, and I need to think of the best way of doing these words with them uh, and I come to a lot of the same conclusions I can't explain it but certain things will seem appropriate and certain things won't seem um, so appropriate you know Russians need a lot of cigarette breaks and you know French need a long time for lunch so there are certain sort of local differences but basically it's very similar having said that you know that the work we do you know Nick and I will maybe walk to rehearsal and what we see on the streets will probably go into that rehearsal that day you know, what we've seen on the news the night before might go in. We're continually being influenced by, by what we see. So if we're a housing play in Moscow, then you know, what we see on the streets in Moscow will probably go in. We try to be quite open to these things and not just keep everything out. Thank you very much, Declan. And that's where we're ending for today. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Cheek by Jell's podcast. Not true, but useful. If you have any questions for Declan and Nick which you would like to ask, get in touch with us on social media and we will answer them in an upcoming episode. In the meantime, if you want to find out more about the plays we discussed today, you can find links to Cheek by Gel's archive in the podcast notes below. Tune in next week for a design deep dive with Nick Ormerod as he takes us through his creative process. I've been your host, Lucy Dawkins, and the music you're hearing was composed by Pavela Kimkin. Until next week. <laughs>